overlooks Jerusalem. Some people say Herod had great faith. Jesus, one day looking at Herod's mountain, said, I tell you this, if you have faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed, I tell you, you can say to that mountain, go into the ocean and it will go. So Jesus said, look, Herod has great faith in himself. You just need a little bit of faith in me. That was supposed to say for another message too, but it didn't. Okay, so let's look at what Herod said. Herod said, temple, you used to have a temple? I'll build you a temple. Herod took that little tent and then Solomon's temple. And he was like, I can do it bigger and better, folks. And he did. And this today still stands, not the temple in the middle, but that whole top area still stands. And that's where the Dome of the Rock is. And the Aloxamar Aloxamar Mosque is on top of there. And so uh, you got the mosque on there. You got the Dome of the Rock on there. Like this thing is still going today. This is where the Western Wall is, the Wailing Wall. In fact, if you're looking at this picture, on the back side of this picture is there today called the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And so Herod built this incredible thing. And that takes us to what I would like to, to look at tonight. And that is why would God, let's go back to that picture real quick. Why would God let this temple get torn down? It is magnificent. And now say, you are the temple. Is a worthwhile question to ask because that answers the question that Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body. You have been bought with a price. You are more than this. And so let's take a look. Turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, or at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and they began to eat them. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? This is the verse, verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus walking by. Can you imagine seeing that giant temple? And Jesus walks by and says, I tell you, something greater than that is here. Something greater than where the presence of God resides, the Ark of the Covenant. How can you say those things, that something greater than the temple is here? Jesus loved the temple. In John 2, 17, he said, my zeal for the house of God will consume me, is what the disciples were reminded of when he tore into the temple twice he got rid of money changers in the temple. In Matthew 21, let's, let's look at that. If you're in Matthew 12, just flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 21. We'll see one of the two times that Jesus cleanses the temple. Starting in verse 12, and, and Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priest saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hoshana to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. So look, Jesus goes into the temple one day and he cleanses the temple because he loves it so much. And he quotes a verse out of Isaiah, and he says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the people. In the temple, they were selling and buying goods back and forth, and they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles, which meant that the Gentiles, which would be most of us, couldn't even go to church. Jesus loved the temple. But the funny thing is, the people love the temple more than they love God. Some folks have asked me about um, different types of, of Christianity. And I've worked in, I think, three different denominations and a few different churches. And so I've seen some different brands of Christianity. I did a parachurch ministry all through college. I've seen a lot of different folks in a lot of different walks of the Christian life. And one of the biggest dangers that I have seen are when Christians begin to love other Christians more than they love God. In some churches, Christians begin to love the feeling of God more than they love God. They'll sing and they'll worship, and I think it's good to raise your hands when you worship, but they do that in hopes that they can feel God, and if they don't feel God, they'll get saved again. Or they're like, man, I can't really spend time with God right now because I gotta spend time with my friends who are, who are Christians. Jerusalem had become a place where people loved the things of God more than God himself. And if you're going to get to that spot, you might as well love the things that are not of God more than God himself, because it's all the same. An idol is an idol no matter what it looks like. Matthew chapter 27. Turn there with me. Jesus spends his whole life, whole ministry life, back and forth to this temple. The one I just showed you the picture of, back and forth to Herod's temple. He preaches in the temple. He messes up at least one entire worship service in the temple. He makes incredibly bold claims in the temple. He cleanses it twice. He was there for multiple feasts. I don't know if you know this, but every day in the temple, they would bring a lamb in. And at about nine in the morning, they would sacrifice that lamb. And the way you sacrifice a lamb is you pull its head back and you cut its throat and you try to kill it as quickly as you can kill it and humanely as you can kill it. And then you catch the blood of the lamb in a bowl and the bowl doesn't have a regular bottom on it like your cereal bowl. The bowl has a point on it. So you can never sit the blood down or it'll spill out. 
And you can't let it congeal. It has to stay warm. And they would take that blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar and they would sprinkle it around sacrificing, saying that this sacrifice is for the sins of us because we know sin equals life and the blood is the life. And then every day about 3 p.m., on that temple mount where a long, long time ago a man named Abraham brought his son and pronounced over that place, Jehovah Jireh, one day the Lord will provide. Those priests would sacrifice another lamb at about 3 p.m. and catch its blood and do the same thing, offering the same rituals and saying one day God will provide. Years and years later, there was a shepherd boy who lived in Bethlehem, only five miles away from Jerusalem, who tended sheep. Those sheep, because it was so close to Jerusalem, were often the ones that were used at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. That shepherd boy is the one who wanted to build the first temple in hopes that Messiah would one day come. His son builds that temple, and on that place begins that 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. sacrifice on the place where Abraham first went to offer his son. And you can imagine, years and years later, here comes Jesus. And I wonder how many days at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. he watched the sheep go in. And he knew... What John said about him was true. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in Matthew 27, at the height of temple worship and worship of the temple, I would almost say, Jesus goes to the cross at the base of that same mountain. Let's read it. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, which is about noon, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And then at once one ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. A couple of hundred yards away, in the temple, a priest was pulling back the head of a lamb and cutting the throat of the lamb. And the blood was running out into that bowl that has a point on the bottom of it. And where was that priest? He was right in front of the veil. What's behind the veil? 
what's supposed to be the presence of God. And how do you get to the presence of God? Well, you have to have the blood of that lamb being sacrificed, and you've got to be pure, and you've got to go through all the things that represent Jesus to get to the presence of God. And so the presence of God was sealed off for so many people for so long. And now, verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resur- until after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many and when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus at the cross saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and they said truly this was the son of God So in Matthew 12, 6, when Jesus walked by the temple and he said, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was just a foreshadowing of a couple of thousand years of history of God saying, I want to bring you from the east to the west. I want to draw you to my presence. I want to show you what it's like to be in my presence. I want to give you a people who are supposed to know me and represent me. I want to show the world what it looks like to know me. And then Jesus one day finally follows the same footsteps that Abraham and Isaac followed. And he goes up that mountain and he is the Lamb of God and he is sacrificed on the same mountain. And now the presence of God is released. And if you're wondering, by the way, how all of this like ties up into a bow, if you flip over to uh, Acts chapter 1, you don't have to flip to it, I'll just read it to you. Jesus ascends up into heaven in a cloud, took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, I'm in chapter 1, verse 10, behold, two men stood by the disciples in white robes, and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus was taken from the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come back on the Mount of Olives, and when he comes back on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives, you can probably guess which direction that is to the temple. It's to the east. And when he comes back, he will walk to the west towards the Temple Mount, and he will set up his kingdom forever, and no one will tear that kingdom down or that temple down. And everyone who's left at that point will be drawn to him. And so we fast forward to what brought us to all this in the first place. 1 Corinthians 6.19, so you now are the temple. In 1 Peter, in fact, turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. This will be probably the last one we look at tonight. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter builds on this. And he says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Lewis, do you think you can go back to the slide of just the stone? So this stone, even though the temple was built all around it, is called the cornerstone. It's called the foundation stone. This, where Jesus was sacrificed, ultimately represents the cornerstone, the foundation. And the scripture says that you and I are living stones being built onto this stone. And since they used a temple analogy, I'll just build it out for you. So these stones, and I hope you can all go to Israel one day and see them. These stones, some of them weigh 200 tons. And what would happen is you would go to the quarry and you would take a chisel and you would chisel around all four edges of the stone. And it would be a deep cut. In fact, I'm going to read you from an archaeologist the way that it works. A deep, narrow channel was chiseled around all four sides of the block, isolating it from the surrounding bedrock surfaces. Now remember, if you're a Christian, this is you. At some point, the Lord came into your life, and he began to chisel around you. And he separated you from everybody else. He isolated you. And the archaeologist says, a row of cleaving stakes were then inserted in the bottom part of the block until a fissure was created and the stone became detached. And so initially the Lord, if this is us, he chisels around us and makes a square. Then he's not done chiseling. Then he begins to drive a wooden stake in multiple parts of the stone. Then he's not done irritating yet. He begins to pour water on each of those wooden stakes until they swell up. Now at this point, if a stone could talk, it would probably say, stop. But what happens is slowly but surely, that rock begins to crack. And it finally breaks free of the rest of the rock around it. But we're not done yet. Then, once the rock breaks free, a stonemason would dress the rough blocks with margins and decorations on the outer faces to produce a finished stone block. But they would leave two protrusions on the side of the stone. And the reason they would leave the two protrusions on the side of the stone is so they could wrap ropes around it and pull it where they wanted it to go. And now you are that stone. If the Lord has been hammering on you and chiseling on you, take heart. He's not done. There's more to go. How old was Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice his son? Like, really old. So if you're like, 
Thomas, where's the good news? The good news is that he's chiseling on you. He's picked you out to be a part of his temple. He's picked you out to be a part of his work. He's picked you out to be his. And about the time you think, how much more can he chisel, you pop loose. And you're like, I'm free. And most Christians at that point are like, I'm good. Like, I'm out, I'm free, I'm not who I used to be, I'm not trapped in the bedrock, I'm good. And the stonemason walks up and begins to do a decoration on you. And that decoration breaks off more chunks. And usually at that point, we're like, please stop. And you know what? Most Christians do stop there. And they quit reading their Bible, and they quit being in Christian community, they critique sermons. They critique the worship. They shop around from church to church. And eventually, Christianity was something that used to be a part of them. But for the few, a few that stick around and say, keep going. I know you got a plan here. Well, the stonemason gets done and they look good and they're like, I'm unrecognizable. And then all of a sudden they're being drugged somewhere. And the journey finally stops when the Lord locks us into the place that he had seen that we were supposed to be before he ever started chiseling. That is when the living really starts. Because at that point, I look beside me and I'm like, oh, you got hammered on too. So did you. You look great. You're like, you look great. Man, the Lord's done a work on you. What's your story? Oh, well, I was like 30 feet deep. You wouldn't believe it. Like, oh, man, me too. Um, like, do you have some water stains on you? Yeah, you wouldn't believe what I went through. Uh, and like, man, the Lord redeemed you and he brought you out and he hammered on you and you stayed and he worked and like, that's your responsibility. His responsibility is to hammer and to fix and to mold you. Your responsibility is to sit there. And when he turns up the heat and the hammer goes harder and the chisel comes closer, just like he had a plan for thousands of years that he worked out, He's got a plan for you. There's a picture that I didn't put up because I put up a lot of pictures and I know I had a lot of scriptures tonight. But it's the author of the, the book that I was looking at for some of these photos. And he's standing by a bunch of stones that didn't get used. And I don't know the full story on why those stones didn't get used, but it creates a pretty incredible picture of there's so many folks that just stop just short. My encouragement for you, don't be the one that sits in the pile of stones that didn't get finished. You're in good company if it's uncomfortable. Jesus said, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. You know, the, did your parents ever sing that song to you? This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord... Did anybody ever sing that song? Like my, my parents used to sing that song. There we go. I see the hand on the back. Well, Lee and I are the same age, so that makes sense. But uh, there's this song like, this is the day, this is the day the Lord has made. And it comes from Psalm 118, and the Psalm in 118 says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. The day the Lord made, Psalm 118 is talking about the day Jesus went to the cross. Jesus is our perfect example of what it feels like to be hammered on and to be pinched and to be squeezed. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you know what? I thank the Lord that he hung in there. But because of his work on the cross, I can have a relationship with him. So my challenge for you as we wrap up this series is this. You hang in there. Let the Lord do his chiseling. Let him finish the work that he started. Because there is no temple right now. There is nothing. You're the church. You're the temple. And as grandiose as Herod's temple was, you're more so. But you won't be if you don't let him finish his work. Let me pray that you'll finish, you'll let him finish his work. And then we're going to sing together. Lord, help us. Help us, please, Father, to sit tight. Lord, to sit tight as you make us into the stones that build up your temple, that the world may see your glory. Lord, I thank you that you've chosen so many of us to cut us out of the ground and to make something of us when on our own, Lord, we're hopeless. And Lord, if you're cutting on someone tonight, if you're hammering and chiseling on someone tonight, I just ask that you give them the grace to stay put while you do your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father.